Welcome to Coffee House. This is the book of Genesis. Tis the season to read the writings of some of the most consequential itinerant Jews in history. Apparently the name in Hebrew is Bereshit. Is that how you say it? Bereshit? Meaning in the beginning, which is, you know, named after the opening words. It's a history of the world and the Israelite people. It's got 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. The name Genesis comes from the, the Latin, generation, nativity, and ancient Greek origin, source, beginning, nativity, generation, production, creation. And it covers the most time of all the books in the Bible. It actually covers more time than all the other books of the Bible combined. So, as always, we'll go through the contents of this book. We will do an analysis, talk about the good and the bad of it. And then we will do a big picture discussion to wrap it into a broader understanding of the world. So, the contents. As a brief aside, I read this book, the entirety of the Bible, when I was a kid. I read it a couple of times. But I don't know that I had the maturity to quite understand everything that was going on in these things. There's obviously a lot, and I didn't remember all of the ins and outs of the storylines here. And I definitely didn't think especially long about the underlying foundational ideas that the story is built upon. So, uh, it was good going back through it. But the contents... The stories of your deep wisdom traditions. So, of course, in the beginning, we start with the creation of Earth and the firmament and the animals. We have man and the garden and woman being created. We have the serpent, more cunning than any beast of the field, who suggests that the humans might eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is a grave concern for God. And this is, as far as I understand, of course, this is one of the most studied works of writing in all of history. So there are going to be a million people who know a tremendous amount about this thing, who would be able to contribute in innumerable ways. But we don't have them right now here. We are just reading it to read it as part of the written tradition of Western civilization and Eastern civilization. But one thing that I wanted to point out here was that the term Elohim, as far as I understand it, can be translated as singular or plural. So one of the things in the early books of the Hebrew Bible or the Pentateuch is that you don't actually know for sure whether it's monotheistic or polytheistic, whether there are many gods or a singular one. But one thing that you can say is that the individual gods, well, they'll, they'll have angels and things like that, but the individual gods aren't treated like, say, Greek or Roman. Roman gods, or a lot of the pagan gods, or Zoroastrian gods, or Egyptian gods, are not treated in, the, in that way. It does seem, although I would have decried this historically, it does seem that there's some kind of a special character to the Hebrew god as it's being described and as it's treated. Even if it did mean multiple gods in Elohim, it still seems like this kind of convergence of all the different disparate ideas of what a god is into the concept of having a monotheism. So anyway, after this we get, you know, this Genesis 4, we get the conception of Cain first and then Abel. Cain, the tiller of ground, Abel, the keeper of sheep. And we know that that doesn't turn out so well. Cain goes ham, and I, I like being able to use that because it's a biblical term, but it's also, it's a modern one. So he goes ham on his brother, the first act of kin murder in history that, you know, that we know of that's recorded in writing anyway. And we've got a lot of begottens. Uh, the begottens come from here. There's a whole bunch of genealogy talk, which has its own import, as we will talk about later. 
Adam and Eve have Seth after this. We get in Genesis 5, the book of genealogy of Adam. And Adam lived, what, 930 years. Oh my gosh. What I would give to be able to live that long. You have no idea. I would dedicate every 100 year block to one particular discipline. And just be absolutely incredible at each one. It would be so amazing. It'd be so amazing to be able to do that. Anyway, but he lives and we get all the way to Noah. Noah, of course, a major tentpole. Then Genesis 6, there's talk of the giants of the earth. And how the wickedness has, has risen on the earth. And we talk about the genealogy of Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth? What is it? Japheth? I can't remember. <laughs> but Noah was a good man. And I had forgotten the name. It was the Nephilim. I didn't write the actual name of the giants. That was in Genesis, right? They were called the Nephilim in, in certain translations. And when it comes to translations, I know we talked about this before when we were reading some aspects, something about the New Testament, but how the New Revised Standard Version is supposed to be the most accurate one, but you generally have to pay for that one. You can get free translations of a bunch of different kinds, but generally you have to pay for the NRSV, and that one is is the best one, though it's not as poetic as the King James Version. It's not, the NIV is the one that, that has made the rounds, especially for young Bible readers, and that one is is really dumb. It's got a really dumbed down language and messes up a whole bunch of stuff. So not a fan of the NIV, but just the the translations, the various translations of the Bible is in itself an incredible rabbit hole to dive down. Anyway, so we get Genesis seven, we get the Ark and the whole story and everything related to Noah and gathering the animals, seven of every clean animal and seven of the birds. It turns out. That he has to gather. And of course this has had just tremendous penetration into the culture generally. We get the flood. Then the rain stops. The flood's over. He sends out the birds. And enters into a covenant with God. Who tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply. And after this enthusiastic multiplication. We end up with uh, the whole earth having one language and one speech in Genesis 11. And the fact that people are one. So the gods come down. And again, this is in the translations. It suggests that there are multiple gods. But they are concerned about the power. And this is one of the funny things about Genesis. Is that it wasn't that the serpent, who is often depicted as the devil, but isn't actually within the story or within mythology or the religious tradition. We don't know that that's the devil. <laughs> it's just something that later we, we decide that that's what it's going to be. And there's this whole very interesting history of just how the idea of Satan came about. And what he was at first and what he became over time. And how eventually he was positioned as kind of this counterbalance to what God is and it, that's funny because it becomes more kind of Zoroastrian as you get away from Zoroaster <laughs> anyway yeah I, I mean I just love this stuff I absolutely love I loved reading it I loved reading the stories that were contained in it I loved thinking about the people who wrote it and the people who have been inspired by it or interested in it and all the literary traditions that have been spawned by it I mean so much I loved about this but so this is, of course, the Tower of Babel and the gods come down and confuse the languages. This is, there's a specific term for this that I just learned and I didn't write it down. But there's a specific term for something that's trying to explain why the world is in something like this in literature or religious traditions. But this is Babel, which of course sounds great because, you know, Babel. But the languages are confused now, so the people can't work all together to overthrow the gods. 
But what I was trying to say, yeah, I got completely distracted by the serpent. But the point is, the serpent didn't lie. The serpent was totally telling the truth that, <laughs> that the gods were worried about the people knowing, to some degree, knowing about the good and evil because they were worried about their own stature. Although it's most often depicted as it was, a, you know, concern for the well-being or the safety or the psychological health of the humans. And here again now, we have this depiction of the gods coming down, being concerned about the people all working together. And so having to confuse their speech to undermine their ability to challenge the gods. So Genesis 12, the Lord had said, Abram, get out of your country. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Lot goes with him, and I think they go to Canaan at this point. And there are more promises from the Lord in Genesis 13. As Abram continues, he calls on the Lord, and the Lord promises, you know, all the land I give to you and your descendants. And in Genesis 16, I think we get this whole situation where you have Sarai and Hagar and... Since Sarai's too old, she offers Hagar to Abram, which is their maidservant. He says, she says, go ahead and take Hagar, which, what a name, right? <laughs> I'm so surprised. I haven't seen a whole lot of Hagars walking around. But so Abram is supposed to take Hagar, and uh, they're supposed to bear a child, Ishmael, who's described as a wild man, and will raise his hand against every man, which is an interesting thing. It's it's The question is, why was it the fact that Abram taking a much younger woman to conceive in contravention of conception with his wife, why did that create a wild man who will raise his hand against every man? But then you get the circumcision being a sign of the covenant, and Sarai becomes Sarah, but now she will be able to give him a son through, you know, the largesse or capabilities of God, or the, the miracle, you know, the ability to perform these kinds of miracles. They will now have a son, and she shall be the mother of nations, and the son they shall bear will be Isaac. So in Genesis 18, Sarah is wondering, how is this possible? Am I really going to bear a child at the age that she is? And do we get a shift? We get a shift from Abram to Abraham now and a reference to Sodom. We get the first introduction to Sodom. And then in Genesis 19, we get the siege of Lot, what goes on with Lot. So the angels enter the city of Sodom, where Lot is, and it's it's two male angels, but apparently they're beautiful. So the townsfolk decide that they want to have their way with these with these angels, and Lot, being a good man, is trying to prevent this, but also <laughs> calling into question my characterization of him. He has two daughters and offers his daughters in the stead of the angels. Now, to some degree, you can kind of understand this because you're probably going to get quite a bit of clout from, you know, the powers that be if you protect their angels. But on the other hand, those are your daughters, and yeah, you probably don't want to do that either. So the angels tell Lot to leave the city and do not look behind you, and then brimstone and fire is rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And later, his two daughters want to get their father drunk and become impregnated by him. Uh, to create Moab and Ben-Ami. So, just to uh, sit with this for a second. <laughs> this is another one of those where I don't know the wisdom tradition that is built into this. Obviously, there could be some kind of a, a deep-seated Oedipal thing that's going on. There could be something else, some other ideas. But you would expect, if your father uh, offered you up to a thirsty mob to try to save a couple of male angels that he just met, it's probably going to mess you up a little bit. So, I don't know if we can fault the girls all that much. But then Abraham, in Genesis 20, uh, journeys south, and they encounter some people, and Sarah said, or he said that Sarah was his sister, to try to avoid 
some kind of an issue. And a guy took her to be his wife, but then God spoke to him in a dream to let him know that, no, that's his wife, not his sister. I don't, there was some stuff going on here. So Sarah has Isaac, Genesis 21, and this presages one of the other very major plot points in, in Genesis. In Genesis 22, we have God testing Abraham, and he takes his dear son Isaac on a long and gloomy walk. And my favorite part of the whole walk was when, when Isaac asked, where's the lamb? <laughs> We're supposed to be making a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And Abraham's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> But again, what is the, I mean, there could be so many things that this is trying to say or so many wisdom traditions that this is built upon about having a greater affinity or commitment to something that's outside of yourself and outside of your personal interests, you know, to this extreme extent that you'd be willing to sacrifice your own son for it. Or just something more basic just about, you know, having the faith in God that God has all the right answers and so you should be following that. I mean, there are a lot of different ideas that this could be built upon. So then you get the genealogy of Isaac, you got Esau and Jacob, Isaac loved Esau and Rebecca loved Jacob. Rachel makes an appearance and has some children, and one of those children is Joseph. We're skipping over some stuff. Of course, we're not going to go through literally everything that happened. <laughs> There's the wrestle with God, another important moment where you have Jacob who gets in, and some translations say he wrestles with God. Some translations suggest that it's it's like an angel that he's wrestling with. But either way, you know, good on him for holding his own, holding it down for the people. And that's how he becomes Israel. Well, later on, I think he explicitly becomes Israel, but either way, he's Israel. So Israel loved Joseph the most, and Joseph made him a tunic of many colors. I love this part of the story, too. <laughs> this part's amazing. So Joseph has a dream that his brothers would bow to him. Like, he has this dream of that he's the important one. He's going to be very important, you know, going forward. And his brothers are annoyed, <laughs> and so they sell him. <laughs> they sell him to somebody who takes him to Egypt. <laughs> it's like, what a hell of a prank. <laughs> what a hell of a prank. And an overreaction for for your brother just uh, having a dream being kind of a dick about it. But that that was hilarious to me. So while he's in Egypt, the pharaoh needs some dream interpreting, and they can't find anybody to interpret the dreams, but Joseph can, so uh, this is kind of a, a classic trope when it comes to your protagonist. But remember, this book has had how many protagonists all the way throughout? What other book is like this? It's crazy. But so your protagonist in this situation is the one who can figure it out, you know, relative to everybody else. So the very powerful person. And this is something that you see a lot, actually, in religious writings, especially of this variety is that you'll have somebody who's kind of the would-be protagonist and they are the whatever the authority is around finds them appealing for some reason you know it likes them for some reason and you see this in the new testament too but anyway, so Joseph eventually returns. I think he he finds his father, right? He he talks to Israel after this. So some other stuff happens and we get to we get to 50. <laughs> But that's the book of Genesis. That is the book of Genesis. I absolutely loved reading this thing so much. <laughs> you have no idea. And I can't wait to read the other. I know some of these are going to be a slog <laughs> going through some of the books of the Hebrew Bible. But, you know, I'm just thinking about Leviticus and, and that kind of thing. But we are going to do it. We're going to go through all of them. Not starting now. It's going to be intermittent. I'm not just going to do it. It's not going to be the next the Bible for the next, you know, five years or something. But I really enjoyed it. So, uh, actually, I have some quotes out of here. Most of the quotes that anybody could hear from this, they will have already heard. You know, it's that entrenched into our culture. But, quote, 
Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Quote, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. End quote. Quote, and he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. End quote. I definitely miss all the the kind of archaic language whenever I'm reading, uh, even if it's the NRSV or something, and they don't have the untos and therewiths and or whatever. All those the archaisms that were kind of associated with the Bible, I miss them so much. You get you get the meaning a little easier, but I really miss the writing. You know, just the writing in general. Quote, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. End quote. So that's, uh, you know, the punishment for having colluded with the serpent. <laughs> Although, what did the serpent get out of it? Was he just messing with God? Was that the whole point of that? What was the serpent's motivation to be able to do that? Speaking of, quote, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? End quote. So the crafty little serpent, again, I don't know what the motivation of that little guy was. What was he trying to accomplish? When it comes to the analysis, uh, it's a good book. It has great world building. The characters aren't especially complex, but it's representative of a deep wisdom tradition throughout history. And that's a difficult thing to do. That's a really difficult thing to do. And it has a lot of complexities. God doesn't merely intervene on behalf of the righteous. And whatever the main character is, he doesn't just stop in to make sure things are going well for, for that character. Lots of bad things happen. There are a lot of moving parts. There's archetypal storytelling. Like you have man and woman separated, she from his rib, depending on which Genesis you're reading. But she from his rib and the whole, you know, rest of their lives, they have to try to be reunited. And like I said, the whole idea of the genealogies are very important because it's about your deep history. That's what the whole thing is, is going through this very, very deep history and saying, look at all these things that came before and what is owed to your ancestors. And so it's trying to tie you to those things in a very real way and make that prominent in your mind that it actually is really important. And then you see multiple times petty jealousies leading to extreme violence. So it's like, oh, well, he likes him a little bit more. <laughs> well, whatever, I'm going to kill him or I'm going to send him off to Egypt. <laughs> so, uh, good stuff. So big picture wise, it really appeals to some of the deepest inclinations that humans have. And this is, I'm sure people have studied this, but there's a reason that it's been so resonant and is the foundation of Western civilization. I'm sure like mastering Genesis and really understanding everything that's going on here is something akin to mastering something like chess. The book itself is a civilizational North Star, you know, it's something external or other than that we've been able to use for centuries, you know, for millennia. And uh, dispensing of that, I think, would be a grave disservice to, to everything. So anyway, yeah, that was the book of Genesis. That was great, and I'm not sure what book is coming up next. Like I said, I've been reading a ton of business books right now, so just book after book after book, and I'm trying to work in the other books that I could do for episodes, but I really want to get all this stuff down. So I'm not sure what the next one's going to be, but hopefully you'll be there, hopefully you'll be listening, and I'll see you then. All right, bye. (laughs) 